So, you know, to everybody out there who's in our generation and trying to make sense of this and, and, and challenge the sex negativity, I think it's really important to start asking questions like, why do I believe the things that I believe about sex? How did I come to, you know, have this opinion? And what research have I actually done to check out if it does align with how I think about the world, as opposed to this is an idea that's been given to me and I've just sort of taken it on as truth or fact or the way things are. And anytime you hear yourself saying, well, that's just the way it is, that's a great opportunity to go, ooh, okay, that's some unconscious programming. Maybe I can go deconstruct that and really kind of think about if I believe that and want it to be the way it is. Because I think when we really get real with ourselves, most of us want a different relationship with sex. We are just afraid that if we go there, it will cost us uh, security in our relationships because you know, we, we're, we're relational creatures. So most of us will do all kinds of mental gymnastics to make sure that we fit into the groups that are important to us, our family, with our partner, with our church, with our temple, with our community, because we don't want to get ostracized. We don't want to be cast out. And sometimes asking those hard questions can be very evocative and can create this existential terror, you know, about, oh God, what's going to happen if I change the way I think about this? So again, you know, asking questions, showing up with each other, being intentional to have conversations with your friends and to do that from a place that is shame-free, judgment-free, and again, curiosity informed. Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast, featuring your host, David Kevin Michael Flynn, Stephen James Donald Flynn. How are you? Hope you're doing well. Delighted to have you today. And this is the third episode in our sex series of podcasts. Yes, we sex did say that relationships. Words. Oh, sex and relationships. Sorry, I just got obsessed in the sex bit. But uh, today is really fun. We talked with Dr. Kate Balistrari. She's a psychologist and a sex therapist. And really, and a doctor and a doctor, doctor yeah. of psychology. Yeah, she's great. She's brilliant. And we covered loads of different stuff, all on the topic of sex, relationships, addiction, and Porn, I guess when, reaching our orgasmic potential. Uh, yeah, we talked about all the various different issues that, like, because so much nowadays, like people can get focused on the performance aspects of sex and there can be performance issues and there really is a psychological issue because when you think about sex and its very nature you know we're naked physically but also emotionally and it's a place of vulnerability and often tenderness and insecurities come up so as a psychologist we talked about the very many issues and the the, the tender sides of sex that are often kind of not discussed so very Good interesting work, Thanks, Steve. I really appreciated that. Okay, uh, with, before we start our podcast, big shout out to this week's sponsor. This is Wild. Wild deodorant, natural refillable deodorant that genuinely works. Works. I'm someone with an extremely strong body odor. I do exercise does. a lot. Uh, and often my wife tells me, you stink. By using Wild, it genuinely helps her actually go, wow, you smell nice. So... And I think yeah, it's really it's kind of good. You get it in the door. Uh, it's a refillable that comes once a month, so it's a subscription, and it's very practical and easy. You don't think about it. I genuinely use and it's it all biodegradable. The time. As well. So uh, you're getting twenty percent off if you of your first order when you use the code Happy Pair at the checkout. So um, do that, check them out. It genuinely works, and we think it's great. Yeah. So without further ado, we give you the wonderful Dr. Kate Balistrari. It's really nice to be here with you both. Yeah, you likewise. You're I, in California, Mi Miami, I think. Beverly Hills or uh, somewhere? Right now I'm in Beverly Hills. Yeah, I'm in LA. Oh, cool. Your library looks cool. What's your favorite book you've read recently? Oh, recently? You know what's a really good one is this one called Rethinking Identity. 
or the lies that bind. I mean, it's amazing. The author goes through and talks all about how our identity is shaped in all these different ways that we don't even think about. So I highly recommend. Well, as in terms of all the preconceived ideas we have about ourselves, our beliefs and our, you know, that type of thing, or is it more the cultural? It's it's all, all of the above, all of the above, but definitely he looks through all the different systemic lenses that we are born into and just sort of assume as truths and then how they shape our reality. Very good. Nice one. one. Well, we are delighted to have you. Genuinely, we're super excited. We've been enjoying the last few days listening to loads of stuff on you and reading lots of stuff. And you're great. (laughs) We both absolutely love what you do. So first and foremost, that's yeah, I think what you're doing is so important. So it really Mm. is. But um, I guess first thing just to jump right in is like, why? Why did you get into sex therapy? Because I think that's such an important topic as a psychologist and as, you know, your message about this, I think is so important. Yeah, thanks. Um, it, so this was definitely not where I thought I would end up professionally, but it it happened really organically. Um, I got into the field of psychology, started working in different prison settings, working with sex offenders, and I just realized that they had no idea um, really what was going on with sex. There was no education that they'd been provided, and so much of their understanding about sex was just non-existent and led to one of the contributing factors um, for their offenses typically. So I got really curious about people's understanding about sex in general and relationship with sex. And as I continued in this work, you know, I went into private practice and I found that not a lot of therapists were talking about sex, but it was something that was a big part of people's lives. So I decided to get more curious about it and, um, and got certified. Because wow. I grew well, up in a super sex negative family. So for me, I was like, this, this can't be a bad thing, right? It's so fun. Why is, why is it so taboo? And I just couldn't make sense of it. And how did you bridge that gap? You know, if you grew up in a sex negative family, like I imagine now your parents know what you do, or your family know what you do. And how did you bridge that gap? And how are the rest of your family with it now? Um, you know, some of my family, the younger members are pretty cool about it. They think it's great. They're very sex positive, but definitely some of the... Um, People in the earlier generations don't quite understand it and they have a lot of judgment about it, but that's okay. That's their stuff, not mine. Brittany, you said two words there, sex negative and sex positive. Could you kind of, for anyone listening that isn't familiar with these terms, could you kind of just clarify what they are? Yeah, of course. Um, So sex negativity is, is the lens that most of us are kind of born into. We grow up thinking that sex is a bad thing, it's taboo, or it's really rigid and it should only happen in these certain circumstances, right? Whatever those limited circumstances may be. And we're fed a lot of shame around it, around how we relate to sex. And it's just like this punitive, secretive thing that you're only supposed to do in these really, you know, extreme scenarios, like if you're married, and and that's fine if that's what you choose to do, but a big component of being sex negative is shaming other people for the choices that they have around sex that are different from yours. And so a sex positive lens really says the other thing to be true. I get to define my relationship with sex as long as it's involving consenting humans. Um, And that's okay, right? However people decide to have a relationship with sexuality is okay. And we're not going to shame other people for what they do, even if it's different. We're just going to make room for there to be diversity in how people are sexual because humans are diverse. So why would our sex lives be any different? Yeah, because because we definitely grew up in a culture like growing up in Ireland where the Catholic Church was very prevalent back then. 
mm-hmm. we're 40 now, 41 now. So it, definitely the culture that we grew up in where it was more secretive and it was more whispery, whispery. And you never thought, talked about wanking or masturbation as a young exactly. teenager. You all pretended you didn't do it. And you'd accuse one of, you're a wanker. And it was like, of course I am. I'm 16. Like, we all do it. But like, that was never said. Like, And then yeah. even when I think of it as we grew up, it was never, you know, it just wasn't a, an open thing. And even to be stand, to be having this conversation with you, it's like, it's changed so much culturally. And I guess my question here is more, like I was discussing it with Steve earlier and I was kind of going, I guess at the root of it has to be sex ed, sex education, because unless we educate ourselves and remove a lot of the stigmas around it and the kind of like, ooh, that kind of feeling around it, it's, yeah. it's not going to change. So could you talk about like rethinking sexual education and how we... What, what you would do, you know, with, with your experience and your learnings. Yeah. I mean, if, if I woke up and was queen of the universe tomorrow, what I would do. Oh, I love is this. Impl- <laughs> Go Kate. Queen of the universe. That's a, Queen Kate. I think I, yeah, that's a great one. I like would the you have sound a sword? of that. Would <laughs> you have a sword and a cape or what would you have? Um, what? What kind of Would, would you be would a, like a Marvel superhero? If you were queen of the universe, it sounds cool. Oh, maybe like a gold sequiny cape. That would be fun. Brilliant. 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 Yeah. And like a spandex with very, suit. With very high boots. Yeah. I think it would be a fun, a fun uniform. Um, <laughs> but what I would do in terms of sex ed is create really sort of incremental, um, developmentally appropriate, uh, you know, little nuggets, kernels of information, little sound bites that we would start giving to our kids that are secular and really um, appropriately labeling of, you know, body parts, anatomy. And I would talk a lot about boundaries early. Now, there are some school districts and some places in the world that do this very well, but where there are, you know, parents who are very well-intentioned, but kind of getting in their own way with sex ed is where they, you know, they're, they're mistaking their religious values or their cultural values to be the only thing that should inform their children. And I really think that, although again, well-intentioned, it, it does their children a disservice because kids don't learn about sex until it's way later than they've already been exposed to it. And they're not learning about things like consent and boundaries and how to recognize what you like and talk about that and recognize what you don't like so you can talk about that. So the shame and the secrecy just creates this climate of discomfort around sex and that sets kids up for being exploited. It sets kids up for being ashamed. I think it increases depression and anxiety amongst teens because they all walk around thinking that they're broken or doing something wrong. And then they turn to porn as their primary sex education because it's available and they learn stuff that is maybe fun to watch, but really not realistic and sustainable. So they're going into their real lives and then they're like, what's happening? This doesn't look and feel like how I expected it to. And I mean, it's just a problem because so many people are unhappy and uninformed in their sex lives and it bleeds everywhere in our society. Yeah, it really does. I love, I, I think that's, that's so, such a succinct statement. you like, you, you summarized so much of the issues around sex there. Like you could nearly end the podcast next. <laughs> <laughs> that was no, brilliant. I, I have a good uh, kind of thing that I'd love to discuss was you talked about how you initially got into this with talking with sex offenders in prison, which I 
guess initially must have been hugely intimidating to go in and to try to address this. And two, sorry, a second part of this one was that uh, in a previous, um, when I was doing some kind of research earlier this morning, you were kind of talking about how often some of this can happen in childhood when boundaries aren't set, when it's kind of like, give your uncle a kiss, but you not say bye. And it's almost like teaching children that their bodies are not their own. I just wonder, could you talk yes. about this? Because I think this is so important. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, this is one of those things where I think families are really well intentioned, but they're unintentionally teaching their kids how to be great victims, because they're teaching their kids to ignore the cues in their own bodies. And they're teaching their kids not to speak up for what is okay for them. And they're doing it because they don't want to upset their aunt or uncle or the, the family member who might take offense. But I think we, you know, we, we we're moving away from this understanding that an authoritarian approach to parenting is the most appropriate. And when we start shifting and teaching our kids that they have a voice and we can respect their bodies and they can respect their bodies, we set them up later in life for being far more cognizant to understand when somebody is disrespecting their boundaries um, and far more aware of the realities that it's okay to say no and it doesn't mean that somebody doesn't like you or they don't love you. I think because we're so afraid to teach our kids to say no, we're teaching them that we have to protect the fragility of other people's egos instead of creating a culture where we can help those egos that might get a little bit bruised feel better without crossing the boundary or putting ourselves in the um, subjective experience of their need instead of ours. Yeah, wow. So, so, so like, for example, like say I'm there with my children and one of an aunt or an uncle, just for example, says, oh, will you give me a hug? And my child says no. And I go, go on, give her a hug. I'm almost telling my child to override their their kind of yes. sensitivity within themselves saying, no, I don't want to do this. This doesn't feel appropriate. And mm-hmm. kind of this is kind of almost modeling kind of inappropriate behaviors or just telling Maybe them to disregard the boundaries. Maybe yeah. it's the seed of it to an extent. Yeah. Uh, okay, I, I, I'd love to move the topic on to another way. So as a psychologist, like like I'm realizing, you know, this this is we're doing a series on sex now and it's, it's I'm, mm. I'm so fascinated with it. And I'm realizing that the root of se- like sex seems to be a bedrock for kind of insecurities. And it's a place where a lot of our kind of insecurities and our fragilities and our tenderness and all these type of things, because it's the ultimate, you know, you're, you're naked and it's, mm-hmm. you know, physically and emotionally and all the various aspects to it. And I think there's huge amount of psychological issues around sex. Could you talk as a psychologist about what are the main psychological issues that you come across, you know, that supersede gender or whatever? Because I'd imagine there's, there's like, now that's a massive question. But there's probably a few <laughs> themes that you come across consistently time and time again. Good question, Dave. Good Thanks, question. Dave. <laughs> that is a really good question. Um, I'll try to be succinct, but I think, uh, I mean, a couple of things that really stand out is that because of the way that most of us are conditioned to feel like sex is this like super compartmentalized taboo thing that we do over here and it's not part of who we are in our everyday lives. Um, it can create a lot of uh, dissonant feelings. We can have a lot of anxiety around being sexual or not being sexual. Um, we can have uh, feelings of fear, isolation, abandonment concerns, rejection. Um, we get uh, traumatized sometimes by what happens in our body or to our bodies if we're not consenting um, or if our body's not acting or reacting the way we might hope that it does. Um, and then, of course, you know, think about 
the relationship we have with sex and how that informs uh, the way we see ourselves and our identity and whether or not we feel even good enough to be out in the world. And that can show up differently for people of different genders and different sexual orientations, depending on how they've been supported and conditioned around concepts of gender and um, it, you know, permission to be sexual. So I think you know, when we look at it kind of as an individual, interpersonal and sort of collective societal level, our relationship with sex really under underpins so much of what is great about our world and devastatingly tragic about our world. How's that for a soundbite? Wow, that's <laughs> yes, a good one. It's, it's hard to understand. I couldn't quite understand it all. But essentially that there's so much kind of like this, tr like, you know, sex is not separate to life. It's almost like, you know, it's the manifestation of a lot of who yeah. we are. And that's why there's so much nakedness and vulnerability in terms of it's a space where if you ha are traumatized, it'll probably manifest in terms of your sexual experiences. Possibly. Maybe that's what I heard. Yeah. But, no, that's so right. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. thought you did pretty good. Thanks, um, Steve. Well, one thing that I'd, I'd love to, to, to ask uh, Kate is that sense of, you know, intimacy. Obviously, it's so personal and it's so mm. we all relate to differently. And it was only kind of recently my wife's a psychologist also and she kind of simplified the term intimacy because you know in, in my education that I had I was seldom discuss what is intimacy and how do we relate to intimacy and it was you know <laughs> the idea of into me see like you're you're literally yeah. revealing the raw the vulnerable the the insecure the dark parts of ourselves and obviously the nature of being intimate someone is we must share this are there any kind of basics obviously everyone experiences it so differently but are there any fundamentals of intimacy with how you know the basics of it where we can create a space where we're easier to do that or um i'm kind of struggling with That's the question, question. Right. No, you know you got it you <laughs> okay can, you i got, got it, it. You okay got, like, i wasn't kind of wrap it up but it was like we got the gist of it okay thanks you know what I really love about your question? It demonstrates so perfectly what intimacy is really like, right? Sometimes it's messy, it doesn't come out right, it can be awkward, and that's the beauty of it, right? Because we're all imperfect and we all have all of these, you know, quirky edges and spots and stripes. And intimacy is about saying, here's my mess. Can you see me and love me in it? And you know, can you just be careful not to judge me too harshly? Because <laughs> I kind of like the mess over here and the spots over here, not so much, but this is it, right? Here it is. And when we're trying to create that with another person, I think it's so important to recognize that we do have these inherent vulnerabilities. So the gift that you can give yourself and your partner is the gift of safety and non-judgment when you're holding that space for each other. And to just kind of, you know, be curious instead of critical. That's a nice, that's really important. Certainly yeah, in building trust and, and safe, building. safety is often something that's kind of, you know, un, undermined and seen as so conservative and so boring yeah. when associated with intimacy. And, but maybe, and maybe it's safety at the expense of performance. Because maybe, you know, that yes. mindset, if we live in a porn, you know, an over pornified culture, I don't know if that's a word, but where people are more concerned about performance, yet safety is really at the root of vulnerability and therefore lacking intimacy. I've gone off on one there anyway. Um, okay, I, I, I had kind of a fun question there. Well, I thought it was fun. So as we were saying, okay, if we wanted to kind of change or to make the world much more sex positive, we need to start with kind of sex education. But for those of us that grew up in a sex negative culture and are adults now, like how do we create amongst us adults that have have grown up with that how do we create more shame-free kind of sex really and relationships around it 
It's so much easier to, you know, program in a sex positive way than it is to unprogram and reprogram. So, you know, to everybody out there who's in our generation and trying to make sense of this and, and, and challenge the sex negativity, I think it's really important to start asking questions like, why do I believe the things that I believe about sex? How did I come to, you know, have this opinion and what research have I actually done to check out if it does align with how I think about the world, as opposed to this is an idea that's been given to me and I've just sort of taken it on as truth or fact or the way things are. And anytime you hear yourself saying, well, that's just the way it is, that's a great opportunity to go, ooh, okay, that's some unconscious programming. Maybe I can go deconstruct that and really kind of think about if I believe that and want it to be the way it is. Because I think when we really get real with ourselves, most of us want a different relationship with sex. We are just afraid that if we go there, it will cost us uh, security in our relationships because you know, we, we're, we're relational creatures. So most of us will do all kinds of mental gymnastics to make sure that we fit into the groups that are important to us our family, with our partner, with our church, with our temple, with our community, because we don't want to get ostracized. We don't want to be cast out. And sometimes asking those hard questions can be very evocative and can create this existential terror, you know, about, oh God, what's going to happen if I change the way I think about this? So again, you know, asking questions, showing up with each other, being intentional to have conversations with your friends and to do that from a place that is shame-free, judgment-free, and again, curiosity-informed. Lovely. So, so for anyone listening who's kind of like maybe in a relationship, maybe let's start with people in a relationship, and they're kind of like, you know, they've been in a relationship for a while and they're kind of, you know, maybe they haven't, like I had read before that the two main topics that people fight about in relationships is one finances and the other one is sex the two main issues and on the sexual one I guess it's really having those conversations and starting that dialogue and for anyone that kind of hasn't typically you know who grew up in in sex negative you know they had those type of upbringings do you have any tips to start the ball rolling because like I imagine it's well you just start having it but you must know as a psychologist that there's more to that because there's emotional barriers and there's the idea of, yeah. oh my God, if I bring this up, my husband or my wife might go, oh my goodness, that's awful. How could you discuss that or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, such a great question. I, th I think one of the things that can be really helpful is uh, as a couple, if you decide you want to read some books about it or check out some videos online together, and then you know, take some time to reflect individually and then come back and share your ideas and do this with an agreement that we're not going to judge each other. We're just going to be open-minded and we're going to sit with information and just process it. So I think, you know, when, when we come to the table and say things like, I have a new idea or I have a kink that I haven't learned about myself before, or I want to try something new in the bedroom, it can create a lot of insecurities in a partnership. Um, but it also can create a lot of closeness, a lot of connection when you're able to parse out, well, what about that is erotic for you? Um, I don't know if I'm okay with it, but if I am, what would it look like to try it? Or I don't know if I'm okay with it. Is there something else we could do to scratch the same itch? Right? When we come to the table and, and like create options and get really curious and educate ourselves together, then it can be an adventure just in having the conversation. And it doesn't, need, it doesn't even mean that anything needs to change. It can even just be a conversation. Mm. Yeah, and for, and even for, even hearing the way you talk about it, like just talking about it, just seems so like it's like wow, that's so easy. Of course, to do. of but course. It, but it, but, then, but then I wonder there must be people listening who like even what you said that sounds like 
like 10 laps ahead of where they are. <laughs> like, and I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of like, I, I just, so, so would it be easiest for them? Like, cause they're, they're maybe they've never talked about that and they've been together for 10 years and they have kids and whatever. And they're gone, there's no way I could say to my, my partner that I would love to try such and such. Like, is it easier to go kind of go, Hey, could we go see a counselor that also specializes in sex and kind of, and it creates a forum <laughs> then that you can have these conversations yeah. because as you said, safety is such an important one. And I just wondered yeah. if someone was further, not that it's a track or any sense, but <laughs> if someone hadn't, was further back on the journey to sex positivity would you have any kind of thoughts on that yeah so a great place to start maybe is even social media find some sex positive content creators that are interesting to you and who are asking questions or putting out information that is kind of aligned with whatever is is tracking in your mind about sex and you could even just forward that to your partner and be like hey i saw this thing what do you think about that and that's a safe strategy to kind of gauge if they're open to the conversation if they're going to have judgments about it or if maybe they're really you know curious and excited too and that's kind of a low emotional investment way to start a dialogue because if something doesn't land you can just be like oh yeah that was bananas that's <laughs> and a great write it tip. off <laughs> that's that's a really good practical thing and for like is your day-to-day -day, are you in a clinic and people come in like couples and individuals come in and have issues and you help them with it yeah before the pandemic i i was in an office but since the pandemic i'm all virtual okay oh, why a lot of digital time and what are the main like I, I don't know what are the main issues that you see with men or with women could you maybe talk about those type of things which <laughs> Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, when you look at the themes that people come in to talk about, they're kind of the, they're they're kind of the same, right? Am I am I good at sex? I don't know enough about sex, or my partner and I have mismatched desires or mismatched libidos. Um, I'm not able to have an orgasm, or I'm experiencing compulsivity. Um, I think you know probably with men, uh, more of what I hear are things related to. Um, erectile dysfunction, early ejaculation and compulsivity around sex. And for women, it's, it's usually more around, um, I'm not able to have an orgasm with my partner, but I can on my own and I want to make sense of that, or I'm recovering from a trauma and my body's not, you know, doing what I would like for it to do. Um, I work with a lot of couples who are experiencing a change in their sex lives after pregnancy and childbirth, and they're trying to get that back um, as part of their day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, there's just, there's a whole lot of ways that people talk about sex and, and want to learn more about how they can be sexual in ways that are endlessly exciting. Sounds like really worthwhile work. Like when you say it there, I'm kind of going, wow, what, like, it, like it really does sound like you're really helping people because sex is such a place of vulnerability and tenderness and i think if you on can help human, people you know on the human experience like yeah I think it's genuinely. right up there yeah. um move, moving is. on to not necessarily just the topic of infidelity and divorce because divorce oh, rates seem one. divorce rate seems to be on the rise you know since uh, at least since i've kind of become an adult i am an adult now yes um <laughs> and, and even statistically we're identical twins and i'm divorced so that's 50 percent of us have been divorced which i don't oh, wow. know has the have the rates gone up? I'm married. I'm recently married, very happily married now. So, congratulations. Um, Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I have to look back at the rates. I don't know if they've changed a lot, but certainly when the pandemic hit, uh, there were people filing left and right. I think just kind of realizing being in close quarters, like wow, this is not this is not working. So there have been a lot of people making big changes in the last year and a half. 
Yeah, and, you know, and so what about marriage? Like, what are your thoughts as a as a psychologist and sex therapist? Do you see rates in marriage increasing, or uh, I guess marriage and divorce? I guess both of them hand in hand, really. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they do go hand in hand. Um, can't have one without the other. But uh, yeah, I think actually the numbers for um, millennials and Gen Zers are going down in terms of the the number of people getting married. Yeah. And why do you? What would you? What would your thoughts be on that? On why? I think there's a few reasons. Largely, it's um, economic. I think for most kid, for most folks in those generations, I don't want to say kids. I sound so old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you heard just started on that track. It's like, oh, is that a new PC thing? You can't call someone yeah. kids now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's economic. I, I also think that um, there's just been a, a, a different way of being in the world where people are not as rushed to meet these milestones and they're thinking a little bit more about who they want to be and how they want to show up and maybe questioning some of the traditional um you know scripts that they've been given and really asking questions about is this what i want because a lot of kids grew up and they saw their parents stay together and have really miserable marriages so many of the people that I work with are really, really steadfast in their understanding that that's not what they want. So they're, they're taking their time, they're doing things differently. And I also think the um, advent of social media and all the technology that we have has created a little bit of FOMO and a little bit of uh, decision paralysis when it comes to dating. So people are, you know, <laughs> just dating a lot differently than they did 20 years ago. Yeah, I wonder, that was something which I was thinking about earlier was that like with dating apps, it seems to create more, you know, you're like, you, you have all these fantasies of who these people might be yeah. beneath the avatar. And then if you go on a date with them, they're kind of different than what your fantasy was and you prefer your fantasy. So then you might move on mm -hmm. to the next fantasy or idea. And I wonder, does it yeah. just create an opportunity for more shallow connections rather than, you know, a deep, a more deeper, intimate one? It can. Yeah, it absolutely can. We have we have such a two-dimensional experience with technology, but we've projected onto it this three-dimensional, even four-dimensional experience. And so it, it's expected that it's going to fall flat if you have an understanding or if you have an expectation that it's going to look this dimensional. Um, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, like I, I know nowadays it's, I think it was a friend said it to me, a friend who's big into stats, I think it was Harold said it. Harold said that I think it was about eight out of 10 um, new relationships are, you know, form online. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas growing up, the online dating was seen as this, wow, no one does it. It was like happen. putting your credit card into the internet back, you know, 15 years ago. It was like, you don't do it. The internet's <laughs> going to swallow up your credit card. You know, and if, and if you met someone online, it was like, wow, what kind of person are they? Whereas nowadays, yeah. it's literally eight out of the th 10 people now meet online. Uh, you know, due to the change of this, has there been a different kind of relationship? Like, uh, I'm trying to understand my question around this because, like, I find it fascinating now that eight out of 10 people literally meet online and over a short period of time like 10 years this has just changed where you used to know a friend of a friend or bump into someone it all started via these loose social interactions whereas mm -hmm. nowadays it's so immediate instant gratification I see someone online great I go on a date with them in an hour nah they're not free I'll go find someone else you know has mm -hmm. this changed the way in which we are becoming intimate 
Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, as I said, it's, it's become this like two dimensional experience where we're sort of gamifying the, the process of intimacy. So for a lot of people, you know, it, it just becomes really easy to dehumanize and they're not doing it consciously, but unconsciously, you know, you just see these pictures and it's like, you're choosing a game piece on a board to play like, Oh, you're, you're fun. You'll, you'll fit for my game tonight. You'll, you'll be a part of this experience. Um, if you're free. And if you're not, like you said, it's just like, okay, I'll swipe until somebody is. So we're becoming both more discerning and less discerning at the same time, which I think is kind of confusing for, for many people. And yeah, just it's, it's creating a very different way of relating to people that I think is in the collective unconscious, gratifying for many, but also incredibly frustrating um, because of the way it's changed how we relate to each other. And people's dating behavior has become so, um, what's the word I want to use? There's, there's very little integrity. You know, we're just ghosting each other left and right, uh, speaking to each other so poorly, uh, shaming each other on apps without even knowing each other. It's, it's been a really interesting um, exercise in the devolution of communication. Wow. wow. When you say yeah. it like that. Because sex really is the ultimate communication and mm -hmm. I sometimes wonder that is like a lot of people what, are looking. What do you mean by that? Sex is the ultimate communication. Well, it's we're physical creatures. Like, you know, we use words now and we're discussing in words, but there's a lot of the body language stuff going on. And sex is really just the greatest, a super expression of body language and connection and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I wondered that like, and maybe you can talk about this is that I think this is, a concept so it's not necessarily a question i wonder that a lot of people kind of are seeking sex and they're going out and they're looking for sex but underneath it i think maybe people might be looking for more intimacy and to be seen and and connection and what they're going out into the world for is for sex and a desire for sex but really they want to feel safe and to be held maybe is that what do you think of that i think that's absolutely true i, I think we we use sex in so many ways to get other needs met um you know for for some people absolutely it's just about hey i want to get off and do you okay cool let's go do that um, but for a lot of people the majority of us have other relational needs that get met so whether it's the the feeling of someone's touch or to be held or to be seen or to be validated or or to feel beautiful or to feel powerful right we use sex to to accomplish all of those things yeah totally really, really nice Nice, become, I like that. Well, it's become like almost like we're just, anyway, I won't go on to that. Okay. Anyway. No, I, I wanted to go back to, I wanted to go back. So you earlier, you said, Steve said about marriage and divorce and infidelity. And they were like big questions all at once. But that just to drill back into that one, infidelity, because that mm -hmm. one, I'd love to kind of chat to you about that and hear your thoughts on it as a therapist, you know, what it does, why we do it. I'm curious about it. Could you talk about infidelity, please? Yeah, yeah. I mean, infidelity happens for a handful of reasons. Um, and usually it's a symptom of a bigger problem in a relationship. Um, people act out of their relationship because they're, they feel lost and their partner, for whatever reason, doesn't feel like somebody they can or want to go to, to, to find themselves or to create a, a new connection with themselves. So they seek that in others outside of the relationship. I think sometimes it happens out of resentment um, over unmet needs. So, you know, my partner's not meeting my needs. I'll go find somebody who will. And then I'll hold that secret and feel like I've got one up on them. So 
we use it to kind of restore a sense of power sometimes in relationships. Um, it also can happen because we don't want to hurt our partner and there's some sexual need that's not being met or other relational need that's not being met. So people think that they're being protective of the relationship by cheating um, because what their partner doesn't know won't hurt them. But unconsciously, you know, there's a felt sense of that difference. And um, I think a lot of people know there's a problem even before they know there's infidelity. Wow. So yeah. that almost like within the relationship, you can sense it, but mm -hmm. you might necessarily be aware of it that someone is kind of, you know, and having dinner elsewhere. Yeah. 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 I'd imagine. And what about like, do you find often that this couples come to you with one partner having cheated on the other and they come to try to make amends? Do you find that's mm -hmm. a common thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are many couples who experience infidelity and it's the wake up call that one or both of them needed to really reinvest into the relationship. And as painful as it is, and as difficult as that uphill climb can be, they work through it diligently and their relationships can become so much stronger and so much more transparent, vulnerable and intimate. Um, and then there are couples who it's the wake up call they needed and they cut ties and go and it's painful and hopefully they go on to find happiness elsewhere when they've healed. Good one. And if you were back into your like queen of the universe role, what would you say the percentage? This is now put just, on your high boots and your gold. Question. <laughs> but okay. So as queen of the universe, if you had to have a guess of how many relationships, okay. So in the whole world, there's loads of relationships. There's like say a hundred and uh, 100, okay. just imagine there's a hundred <laughs> and there's like infidelity happens. What percentage of relationship would you say would forge on? In, in the face of infidelity and what percentage would just end? Would you say it's 80-20? Would you say it's 20-80? Would you say it's 50-50? What would you such think a, as a sex therapist? Such a great question. Such a great question. You know, it's a kind of stupid I, one as well. <laughs> I would love to phone a friend, AKA Google, and actually look at the research on that. But um, anecdotally, uh, I would say it's probably a pretty even 50-50 split in my practice anyway, um, with couples who pull through and make it work and couples who decide to end the relationship. There you are. You That's got an good. answer. Thanks, Emil. Well, that was a bit of fun, really. Anyway, yeah. okay. No, I want to. I want to go on. Okay, okay. I, I, I've okay. got a couple of ones as well. I, I want to ask about relationships. <laughs> are there any pillars? Like, obviously, every relationship is different because every human is is different, and how we relate to one another is different. But are there any foundational elements that are principles of a good relationship? Because you spoke about the need to being seen, and I think this is something that is often so forgotten about relationships. I wonder, yeah. are there any other principles or principles that you could talk about for anyone that can kind of go and may oh, I? Yeah. May I add on that, which is one I don't think we talk about, safety. I think yes. safety is not like, it's not a sexy thing that people go in relationships. I'm looking for someone to make me feel safe. But I think it's a really important thing that we're looking for as vulnerable, tender, insecure humans. It totally is. I think people really underestimate the sexiness of safety, if I'm being candid, because once you feel safe with somebody, I mean, it is a whole new game with them in the bedroom, because safety allows you to really push your limits and to live in that erotic space that people wouldn't feel as comfortable doing if they're curious about if their partner is going to judge them or if their partner is going to be in power struggle with them or if their partner is going to dismiss their feelings. So I cannot emphasize enough how important emotional safety is in addition to physical and sexual safety and financial. I would I've never heard of safety too. like talked about in such a like, wow, I, I want to just like encourage so much more safety in the world. Wow. 
Yeah, well, so, it yeah. is like, yeah, we can do so much more thriving when we feel safe and our basic needs are met. I mean, it's really, it's a beautiful thing. So that would be pillar number one. Um, really, really effective communication is, is number two. And what I mean by that is, you know, going in and doing the work on yourself to understand what your trigger points are, what your set points are, and, and to recognize the earlier signs of dysregulation for yourself, because we all get defensive. We all turn into bratty 13 year olds sometimes when we're not getting our way. There's no regression proof relationship, but being able to recognize it earlier and clean it up faster without, you know, getting stuck in ego or pride or, or, um, inhibiting shame is really, really important because when couples can't repair well and they can't recognize when one or both of them is getting dysregulated, that obliterates safety. And if that continues to happen, couples start building resentment, they don't feel comfortable with each other, and they stop going to each other for the stuff that is really important. So they start siloing in, in their relationship. And once they're just too parallel silos doing life, the bond and the connection are gone and they might as well just be robots. That word dysregulated, I've never heard of that one. That's like a, oh. a really good term. Like, is that a good term for kind of trying to hissy fit? In yeah. some sense, you know, it sounds like a real terror. You know, it's a good one. Okay, like to it. recap. So important things to have a really, you know, to build on a relationship, the importance of safety, the importance of good communication. I loved your, your phrase, the importance of repairing. How well yeah. do couples repair together? Because that's something that's, you know, every couple has a fight and some people, you know, don't necessarily have a fight, but they kind of passive aggressive, a passive aggressive <laughs> fight. And I think, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Whereas I think that sense of being the ability to be able to repair and, you know, show yeah. that sense of I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And the humility, yeah. I think, is so fundamental. So yeah, big. good one. Go on. I've got a couple of like rapid fire things. Well, they're not really okay. rapid fire because they're big ones, but like we could have a bit of fun with them. Okay. So I'd love you to talk first and foremost about like we talked about technology. We talked a little bit about dating apps. Well, we didn't really get into the weeds of technology, but like I guess porn and technology and social media, all those things, if we put them all into a bracket and their effect on their positive negative effect on terms of relationships and sexual relationships. Could you talk about that? Please, please and thanks. <laughs> thanks, Amelia. Um, how much time do we have? That's such a great question. About 45 hours? No, we're going to get it. I don't know how long. <laughs> um, well, here's the thing. Like, just like alcohol, just like like warm, gooey donuts on a Sunday morning, the, the medium is not necessarily the problem. So visual erotica or technology, these are not the bad guy. The way that we relate to them and the way that we assign meaning to them are what can define whether it's healthy or unhealthy in our own individual you know, consumption of it, and then certainly in our relationships. So with porn, I mean, it's available everywhere. And soft porn is, is going on on social media all the time. And I think it's, it's important for couples to really get clear around what they're okay with, why they are okay with it or not, what their boundaries are, and come to terms about agreements that they can actually both live with. Um, it really doesn't work if one person says, yes, okay, I'll do that, and they're not okay with it because they'll start doing it on the sly, and then resentment builds, and that's when things like infidelity happen or betrayal happens. Um, so, you know, they create agreements that really are sustainable, and, and then that can really create for them an opportunity to consume th these medium in, in a way that is enlivening for their sex lives and not destructive. But also, I think, you know, we look at porn, we look at things as this like dirty, bad, gross, you know, sinful thing. And 
so much of that is shaped by our sex negative lens in this world. So, you know, if, if you're somebody who thinks that porn is inherently bad, it's probably going to cause a bigger problem in your relationship than somebody who's like, yeah, okay. You know, porn is porn. It's a fantasy. It is what it is. Let's create some, some boundaries around it so that we can both enjoy it or you can enjoy it or I can enjoy it in a way that works for our relationship. So it's less that the thing is bad, like say porn in example, it's not that porn is the problem, it's more how we relate to it. And if we have insecurities or if we have things, we might be susceptible to being addicted to it or believing that it's real. Or maybe like, maybe could you talk about like porn and teenagers? Because as you said mm -hmm. that like, you know, in sex ed, you'd obviously prefer that people were, they were, there was a more of a sex positive script being taught in sex ed that people didn't, yeah. you know, resort to porn as their main means of education. Because a friend of ours is the chaplain in the local school and he deals with a lot of teenagers when they've got problems. And he says that like, mm -hmm. you know, this is in secondary schools. He says that they're, you know, choking is very common and like, you know, all these, kind of more pornographic type yeah. ways of having sex seem to be more common. And yeah. I just wondered if you could talk about that. Well, one of the things that I think is really dangerous about porn for young people is that it's free. And what I, what I mean by that is when, when we have a lot of porn that's available for free, it's, it's being created in a way that will will engender a lot of views and a lot of traction, right? So the more extreme wins the game in terms of the algorithm. So people are exposed to things that are really dangerous. They don't necessarily understand how to implement it in real life in a safe way. And strangulation is something that, you know, I'm seeing pop up all over the place uh, with young people. And there's nothing necessarily bad or wrong about having that kind of um, sex play, but it's so important that people have appropriate information and education about how to do it safely because it can, it carries with it, you know, a pretty significant uh, risk of long-term injuries and a lot of kids just aren't doing it safely. Um, so that's one point. But the second point is that there are a lot of really um, ethical, uh, ethically produced porn uh, options out there, but they're behind a paywall because they are ethically produced. So the people who are in them and the people who create them get paid appropriately. And it's produced with people who are guaranteed to not have been trafficked or exploited or coerced into being a part of it. And they're modeling healthy boundaries, consent, safer sex practices, and things that actually are um, helpful in the education and titillation of our minds. So I would love to see, and, and again, I'm, if I were queen of the universe, give me my cape, please. I would love to see some regulations about uh, put in place to help protect the um, the porn that is available and to make uh, make available things that actually integrate healthy examples of sex too. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a nice queen of the Very universe. Well said. Um, well, I, I'd never think, heard of ethical porn. I think that's really that's you know, but I can understand why that would be premium rather than uh, on the topic of porn, Kate. I wonder if you could talk about porn addiction and how prolific you've seen it because I can understand how someone, say, a horny teenage boy or someone similar to that, just suddenly gets really into it and suddenly, you know, I, I've heard I was reading articles earlier where you were kind of saying that often people can lose their interest in actual physical sex because they're enjoying, you know, porn more so. I wonder if you could talk about this and what yeah, people absolutely. can do if they find themselves in that situation. And, sorry, what was that last question? Uh, and what people could do if they find themselves in that situation. 
So there, there's a lot of controversy about sex and porn addiction in, in the mental health field. There are some people who really vehemently deny that it even exists, and there are some people who are, are probably over-diagnosing and, and over-conceptualizing it. Um, I'm sort of in the middle around this. I, I do think that a lot of people can become very compulsive with their sexual behavior, and porn is something that I've seen um, become a home for that compulsivity because it is available in this free uh, vehicle and the, the 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 mechanism of technology because it's such a quick visual stimulus it, it can actually create for the brain so much more of a dopaminergic process meaning that when you're clicking something you can be like oh and then you just click again and find something new you click again and find something new so you're training your brain to enjoy the novelty of it and so it's not necessarily that porn is the thing that you're getting addicted to it's the ritual of seeing something exciting clicking and chasing and finding something new. So what ends up happening then for a lot of people who find themselves in this situation is they go into their real life, they, are tr they try to be intimate with a partner, and they're not getting all of the dopamine of the newness that you can get when you're, when you're self-stimulating and watching porn. And now there's all this interfering, interfering, I'm going to put that word in quotes, um, stimuli of another person in the room. So it can engender anxiety and fear where porn's never going to judge you. You know, porn thinks you're great all the time. Everybody there just thinks you're a superstar. They just want you to have a good time. But your partner in real life has real needs and also has smells and sounds and breath and their skin sweats and has different texture. And so there's a lot of other stimuli um, activating different senses in your body. So when we condition ourselves to experience pleasure in this kind of one directional experience of porn, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it's to the ex at the expense of um, stimulus with other people or stimuli with other people, then our brain gets really organized around this being erotic and, and has a hard time processing all of the other emotional and physiological stimuli that go with having a partner in real life. So it can be kind of confusing for people because they want to be intimate with a partner, but their brain's like, wait, what? There's no new stuff going on. This isn't moving as fast as porn. And, it, and all my other senses are going off. I don't know. I don't compute. And then their body doesn't cooperate and they get very frustrated. Yeah, it's, it's the epitome of that kind of the chase, that sense of the chase is better than catch, you know, that kind of sense of wow, out hunting. And I never thought of it that uh, way. I had two things. Yeah. Okay, so the first one is performance anxiety. And I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear your if you could talk a little bit about that. And the second one was if there's like some a female, obviously, who had a baby and was kind of scared and wanted to kind of start making their way back into sex and was very like had kind of was really scared about starting that journey again. If you could talk a little bit about those very different questions. Yeah. <laughs> they really are very unrelated. <laughs> very different, but somehow they fused together in my head. So, <laughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> Well, you know, what they have in common is a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear yeah. and, and vulnerability, because I think, um, you know, for a lot of people with penises who experience performance anxiety or early ejaculation, they're really concerned about being perceived as less than as a, as a man, if they identify as a man, um, or, you know, not a good lover or somehow inadequate. And like, they're not showing up for the person that they're with in a way where, that will be meaningful and will secure them love and, you know, affection. And I think a lot of people who have had children recently also feel a lot of that pressure 
whether it's self-imposed or other imposed, to be intimate with their partner and they're terrified and they're exhausted usually when they've had a baby and they're just getting used to seeing themselves as a parent, as a mother. Um, their body is like bouncing back from this incredibly traumatic experience of being pregnant and giving birth or having a C-section. All of that is trauma on the body, even if it's not a psychological trauma. So their, their body heals. And even though most physicians will say six weeks and then you're fine for sex, I don't think I've spoken with, you know, more than 5% of the moms that I've spoken with have said they're ready for sex at that point in time, but they feel the pressure to be sexual at six weeks because that's kind of the collective understanding of when you quote unquote should. Um, so there's that fear of disappointing their partner. And if it hurts, can I stop? Or if my body doesn't feel okay, what does that mean about me as a person, as a lover, as a partner? Will I be rejected and, or will I be coerced? Um, so, you know, there's kind of similarities in both of those things. Does that answer your question? Yeah, they're very good. They're very good answers. Yeah, because I think the performance anxiety thing is something which I'd imagine with the porn culture and the the app culture, you know, all the dating apps and all this kind of things that sometimes, and even I was chatting to a friend over the weekend and she was saying that she, when she had met a previous relationship of hers, on the first time they ended up having sex, she said she actually had to stop because she said, like, I had this great connection with this guy, but then he went into performance mode and he was yeah. trying to, like, be this, like, porn star kind of character. It was like, hey, like, stop this. This is a load of crap. Like, you're not being yourself. Yeah. And they had to stop and kind of go back to the, you know, back and start going through the paces again. And it took weeks or until they got back to doing it where it was in a much more connected kind of fashion, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's tough. I think that that's one of the downfalls of porn being your main source of sex education, because it, it does sort of create this performative relationship with sex that is unconsciously so much more about the pleasure of being stimulated in your body and, and with another person. It becomes about your identity. Am I good enough? Um, am I man enough? Am I this enough? Am I that enough? Um, and that can really take away from the pleasure of it, the presence of it, and, and definitely the felt sense and that shared connection, whether you're in a committed relationship or a casual one. It's right. basically, it just kind of means you're masturbating with somebody else's body when you're doing that. I like that. That's yeah, a nice, I kind of agree. That's I can a nice little. Can, can, I, can I go back to the three, the kind of rapid fire ones that weren't rapid at all? <laughs> okay, you want to try them? And then you sure? I, I have a nice one. Okay. I have a nice well, one. Well, this is a quick one that is rapid. Okay, so I had read earlier, and I think it was from something you said that masturbating when you have a period can really help, kind of uh, with period pains or mm -hmm. that type of thing. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Absolutely wow. true. Yeah. Cool. Okay, good to know. I don't have periods, but I imagine people listening probably do. Okay, second one was about ketamine. I heard you talking about that ketamine and other kind of more plant medicines can be quite effective mm -hmm. for people with psychological issues around sex in terms of like shame or I don't know exactly what issues. Could you talk about that and and how people figure that out rapid um, fire Dave it's not really rapid fire at all, <laughs> but like, sorry these aren't like yes no questions but <laughs> it's okay um, I'm really I'm glad you asked this question because there is a ton of emerging research on the the use of ketamine psilocybin MDMA on mental health conditions like anxiety depression PTSD and the research is early but it's definitely showing promise in the efficacy of reducing symptoms um, and, and in particular, there's some curious uh, research out there about the use of MDMA 
um, for uh, sex-related concerns with couples or individuals. And again, these the, psilocybin and MDMA, these are not legal substances in the US. I don't know what the situation is in Europe around them, but um, you know, it, it, I'm not recommending that because they're not legal. <laughs> but the research is early and hopefully will be compelling enough to create some uh, some movement in making these substances legal so that people can get access to medication that can help them in a different way. And in terms of like back as a sex therapist, are, are, like are the research showing that like, I guess if you've got anxiety, I imagine it probably manifests in the bedroom also, and that these, these kind of treatments can be very, can be effective and they will hopefully Help yeah, when, when, they're, when they're used with specific protocols um, of therapy, they can be really, really helpful and transformative. When people use them recreationally, you know, I, I'm not going to speak to whether or not that could be therapeutic or not, but um, that's not what the research is studying. So the research is looking specifically at the use of therapeutic levels of these substances and uh, in conjunction with therapy. And that's what they're showing has really great sustainable um, outcomes for people around reducing symptoms of anxiety, depression, and PTSD, all of which play a huge role in our relationship with sex and our relationship with partners. You did very well answering that one quickly. <laughs> good. And, and even the way you're holding your hand up like that now, it could, it almost looks like an eye mask oh as God. part of your queen of the uniform, queen of the universe outfit. It could work. It looks like a kind of like cool arm. Okay. Now it doesn't look good. Okay. Sorry you if I embarrassed bow. you there. Yes. I will bow. Absolutely. Okay. I, I think a really good one to end on. I was looking through. Your, well, I had one your, more rapid fire one after your, if okay, yours, okay, your, okay. You, that can be your ending one. Okay. Uh, um, one of your courses, I think it was, I can't remember which one you've a series of online courses, but one of them, um, you talked about helping people reach their orgasmic potential. And when I heard the word orgasmic potential, I was like, wow, I want a bit of that. And I'm sure everyone listening would love to kind of, you know, move along their orgasmic potential to reach ultimate <laughs> climax. Yes. Uh, I'm just wondering, are there any kind of tips? Oh, sorry, I'm kind of shouting, it appears. Um, I'm wondering, are there any tips for, for us all, you know, on that journey? Because even when I was further doing listening, you kind of mentioned the importance of surrender and relaxing mm. and that the nature of orgasm is it's the very act of surrendering to this wave of pleasure superseding or taking us over. In terms of orgasmic potential, are there any basics that we can all apply that kind of are generalizations? Well, such as question. that. How to have oh, more volcanic eruptions in our life. In a positive way. In a positive way, obviously, in a sex positive way. Yes. Yeah. I'm just really curious if you're available for my marketing materials, because that was like the best, most enthusiastic <laughs> <laughs> way to talk about orgasmic potential. Um, so, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, re relaxation and surrender is so, so important, right? We, it's really hard to even experience pleasure in our body if we're bracing, if we're, you know, clenching, if we're really kind of, you know, over, over protecting. And so, you know, when we're in that somatic state, our body feels like it's in survival mode. And when we can surrender and relax and let be, that's when our body can make space for actually taking in all of these different kinds of pleasurable sensations and we can stay more present with it because when we are not present, like if we're dissociating or going through our grocery list or, you know, trying to count sheep or something, whatever you do during sex to either keep yourself in it or out of it, um, it can really be a distraction from what's going on in the body and can get away from uh, staying alive with those uh, vital moments of pleasure. 
They're nice things to think of. Relaxation and surrender. They're good ones. Okay, now my final class, my last question. So drum roll, drum roll to the queen of the universe. <laughs> okay, for any couples listening, are there any ways to spice up their sex life? I'm sure it's a very common question and we've all heard it, but I'd love to hear it from you. What are your thoughts? Oh, there's tons of ways to spice it up. I mean, and you don't give it to us, Queen of the Universe. <laughs> you don't have to be, um, you know, super outside of the box. Uh, a lot of people get a little nervous when they hear spicing things up and think they have to go break the bank and get like a sex swing or something. And that's an option, but you can do little things um, like, you know, having the crazy audacity to make eye contact during sex. How many times do you really do that and stay connected with your partner's eyes? Not in like a, you know, a really intense kind of scary way, but in a soft gaze and allow the, the intensity of that um, to be a part of what can bring some newness and novelty to your experience. And then of course there are things like you can get arousal serums, you can buy a new sex toy, you can get a fun one that has a remote control and take it out uh, for a stroll and tease your partner when you're going for a walk or out for dinner. Uh, that you can sounds buy fun. What's that? That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are really great ones that are actually um, magnetic and clip into your uh, to a, um, a female partner's underwear so they can stimulate clitorally or vaginally. They're really fun. Wow. Um, so there's that kind of stuff. You can do role plays. You can bring in some erotic imagery uh, or some erotic uh, listening materials. You can write your own fantasies, uh, just anything that gives you a little bit of newness. But I would say even before that, if there's stuff in your relationship that needs to be worked out, that's a great place to start because most of the time we get complacent. We feel like we're not being seen anymore. We feel like our partner doesn't see us as a sexual being. Um, so make sure you know, you're taking care of yourself and cleaning out whatever... Uh, mess might be holding up some res uh, residue in your relationship and getting in the way of, of seeing each other that way. Take time, take some self-care, get someone to watch the kids and go to the spa for the day. Like sounds cliche, but little things like that can make a big difference. Um, and the last thing I want to say around that is really be honest with yourselves and each other about how you're sharing the stuff around the house that needs to get done. Because one of the things I hear a lot from couples um, is that there's just an uneven share of the domestic and emotional labor going on in the house. And then that creates resentment or a lack of energy. And then that can create a lot of sexual tension and frustration because one partner doesn't feel like they have enough space to even be sexual because they're doing all these other things. And the other partner's frustrated because they don't get any intimacy through sex. Um, so when you start to even those things out a little bit and talk more transparently about it, sex comes back on the table in a really fun way. I love Brilliant. that. That's very practical tips. Yeah, they, very were, they were really, really good. I really, really liked them. I thought they were great. Kate, you've been brilliant. For anyone listening, how can they learn more about you and your work? Thank you so much. On Instagram and TikTok, I'm at Dr. Kate Balistrieri, and you can check out my website, modernintimacy.com. Brilliant. Brilliant. And Balistrieri, is that where does the is that an Italian word balustrari? It, it name is. Oh, yeah, it's, name it's word. Sicilian. <laughs> ah, I love Sicily. It's, in Ireland, well, not in Ireland, obviously in Sicily, but uh, Blood Orange season is going to kick off probably in the next few weeks, and oh my God, they're incredible. 
Really? Sicilian oh, pizza. Nice. Sicilian, Sicilian pizza. Uh, yeah, good. Lovely. Lovely. Anyway, <laughs> you've been brilliant, Kate. You've been wonderful. So thank you. And keep up the great work because I think what you're doing is really helping so many people. So thank well, you for thank sharing you. the message of sex positivity. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, thank you both so much. This has been really lovely. I appreciate being a guest. Hope you enjoyed that. I thought that was great. I found lots of little nuggets. Uh, I found myself giggling a little bit about Kate, uh, Queen of the Universe, if she was. <laughs> uh, but I hope you got something from it. I guess there was a lot of practicals and, you know, nuggets on the topic of the psychological issues around sex. Um, yeah, do check out Kate. Um, and also just on this series, I'd love to know how you're finding this series. It's something that we're really interested in and trying to, you know, have this conversation. As Dave was saying more, I think sex is so much just a small part of the human experience and that as Dave was saying almost it's like the fruit of things that happen behind it that it's you know at least in the the, the environment that we grew up here in Ireland it was sex was always this something to taboo something in the dark room so I think you know that this conversation at least is helping us at least to kind of just the more we can bring it out in the open, the more things can become more sex positive and we can maybe move from a scarcity mindset around sex to where it's more you know where accepted free and and, you know wonderful anyway i hope you're enjoying the podcast we're most grateful if you've made it this far thanks a million we really really appreciate it um let us know if you yeah just share it in social media on instagram and we'll reshare it and share the love even give it a a, a five-star rating please on apple podcast i know that's extremely beneficial or even if you have time leave a review i know it really helps but anyway Thank you for listening this far. Wishing you a wonderful day ahead. And um, shout out to Sean Cahill and Sarah Fawcett or Sarah Fawcett and Sean Cahill for producing and editing and uploading the podcast. Thanks a million. Bye, 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 bye,